Are you familiar at all with um, the research professor? She's sort of famous now. Her name's Brene Brown. I see a bunch of people shaking their heads. It's okay if you didn't know her. I didn't know her. I don't know her personally. Um, I didn't know of her until really a few months ago. She has two or three really, really well done famous TED Talks. If you're into like the TED world, you know her. Um, her, her topics, the things that she studies are kind of strange. There are things like shame and things like empathy and things like courage and things like vulnerability. As I was kind of preparing for this uh, series, I was watching some interviews with Brene Brown. And I was watching one of the interviews and she was talking about um, really her kind of like midlife breakdown, which she also jokingly refers to as her spiritual awakening. And uh, which is funny, those two things can kind of work together. And she was reading a bunch of books about like, as a woman, how do I go through a midlife crisis, like a midlife breakdown, like what do I do? And all of the books said, go back to church. Back to church, back to church. That's what you need to do. And so she went back to church. She hadn't been to church for a long time. It was part of her childhood growing up, um, but she hadn't been to church for a long time. And she said something in this interview that just grabbed me. It just stuck out to me. And this is what she said. She said, you know, I went back to church expecting it to be something like an epidural. You come in, you get the shot, and the pain goes away. But what I found was it was more like a midwife. Holding your hand, rubbing your back, saying, push, this is going to hurt. A lot of women are kind of going like this. Um, she went back to church, went back to faith, went back to God, hoping to find easy answers, hoping to find something magical that would make the pain go away. And what she found was a God, a faith, a church that didn't give easy answers, but instead gave a good answer, which is, I'm going to be with you in this. I'm going to walk with you in this. Life is not meant to give us easy answers. Um, we are meant to go with one another. What she found when she came back to church was that she's not alone. And that's what this series over the next few weeks is really going to kind of hit on. We're going to ask some big, hard questions that have a tendency to make us think to ourselves, my gosh, am I all alone in this? Am I the only one who thinks this way? Am I the only one who feels this way? What I hope, what we hope you will hear throughout this series is that you are not alone. Because not only do the people who are in this room and people just like us, like people deal with this stuff, you're not alone in it, but also I hope you will hear that God is with you in it. And there's good news. There's good news behind who Jesus is and what Jesus did for us that um, if you can allow it, the good news of Jesus, to meet you in those hard questions that you face, your life can be completely different because of it. And so this morning, we're going to uh, kind of kick off this series with really kind of an open-ended, purposely open question, and it's this, um, will I ever be blank enough? Will I ever be smart enough? Will I ever be thin enough? Will I ever be perfect enough? Will I ever be eloquent enough? The question behind all of this, of course, is will I ever be good enough? Will I ever be good enough? If that is a question that um, eats at you, or that kind of gnaws at your heart, or is under the things that you're facing every day, will I ever be good enough? What that does in you 
is it drives you to experience the feeling of shame. And that's really like the, that's really the topic for this morning, shame. Now, there's a really good chance that you know what shame is. Um, you, have, you have felt it before, I'm sure. Um, you probably use words like ashamed, right? But there's a really good chance you've never spent time thinking and reflecting on what shame actually is and what shame actually does. And the reason for that is quite simply because it's just one of the worst feelings to, to have. It's one of the worst things to experience. It's so uncomfortable, and so you don't want to feel it. You don't want to experience it. But the, but the thing with shame is everyone deals with it. Men, women, rich, poor, everyone experiences shame. And it's one of those things that we don't talk about because we don't like to talk about. Um, if you look it up in the dictionary, the definition of shame is something like this. It's a painful emotion caused by an awareness of guilt, shortcoming, and impropriety. Right? And you kind of get that. Um, I want to, though, give you Brene Brown's definition. You're going to hear a lot from her because this is, I'm borrowing a lot from her. So I want to give you her definition um, because I think it actually gets to the root. It gets to the heart of what shame actually does to us and what shame actually means. Um, and this is what she has to say shame is. She says it's the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. It's the idea that because of something I did, something that was done to me, some way that I was made, some reason I'm not blank enough, I'm not good enough, because of that thing, I am fundamentally flawed and therefore I'm unworthy of love and connection. And here's the idea. If those people knew who I really am, what I really am, they wouldn't want to be around me. They wouldn't want to be in my family. They wouldn't want to be married to me. They wouldn't want to work next to me, right? That's what, that's what shame is. That's kind of what shame um, does. One helpful way to kind of um, understand shame is to think about the relation between um, shame and things that it's close to, things like guilt. Shame and guilt are related kind of overlapping concepts, um, but there's an important difference between the two. So like guilt will say, um, I did something wrong. Shame will say, I am something wrong. Guilt will say, someone did something to me and they are wrong and they are guilty for doing that. Shame will say, um, someone did something to me and now, and now I am bad. Now I am ruined by what they've done. Shame or uh, guilt says, I made a mistake. Shame says, I am a mistake. Can you see the difference between those two? Guilt is something happened over here, I did something, but that thing doesn't define me, that thing doesn't make me who I am. Shame says, yes it does. That's the thing that makes you what you are. In the same way, humiliation is another concept that's related closely to shame. Humiliation says, I did something stupid and people are laughing at me, but it was just something stupid I did. Shame says, they're laughing at me and they're right to laugh at me. Humiliation is my boss berates me and belittles me in front of my peers because of some mistake I made. And what shame says is he's right to do that. 
He's right to belittle me. He's right to berate me in front of these people. Um, they're related, but there's an important difference, right? Shame is about us. It's about who we are, whereas guilt, humiliation, it's things we've done. It's mistakes that we've made. I think we all probably know what shame feels like. We all experience it. Just last week, last Saturday, actually, I had um, what was one of my more recent shameful moments. Um, it was Saturday night. My wife, Amanda, and my two sisters were out in Red Bank painting ceramic Christmas trees um, to one day be filled with lighting elements that will make Christmas happy. Um, didn't do me any good that day. Uh, so they were out, and I was putting our three boys to bed. And if you're a parent of multiple people, you know what this is like. Um, I was putting them to bed, and last weekend, I was just having a bad weekend. Wasn't the best time for me, it was kind of rough. And um, I'm putting them to bed, and our two older ones, who's nine and five, Zeke and Eli, they're sitting on the bed next to me in Eli's room. And Jonah, our little one, he's not even two yet, he's kind of walking around and running around. And um, I'm like, all right, boys, let's pray. Close your eyes, let's pray. And so I start to pray, and just immediately, I could like feel and then sense and hear um, Zeke and Eli like fighting with each other on the bed, kicking, digging feet in. Zeke is burying his head underneath the, the blanket because Eli's like attacking him or something. Jonah is walking around the room pulling things off of Eli's um, shelves and whatnot. And I just lose it. I just, I stand up from the bed and I'm like, enough! Enough! And I turned and looked at them on the bed and I said, I can't even pray with you people. And I don't know why I called my two older sons, you people, but that's what I did. And I'm starting to feel the shame in there. And I, I just like, that's it, enough, get out. And I like, Zeke, go to your room. Jonah, get out of here. Jonah is less than two years old. This is not Jonah's fault. And I'm like, Eli, just go to bed. And I, I look at him and he has, he doesn't have tears in his eyes quite yet but it's something like that. And he looks at me with this, like, what did I even do? I don't understand, what did I even do? Because this is not like an unusual occurrence in our house, unfortunately. Um, like, what did I even do? And I look at him and I don't have the capacity to be calm and patient and compassionate. And um, so I just, in the calmest fury that I can um, uh, harness, I'm like, just go to bed, Eli. So I go down the hallway to Zeke's room. Zeke's in his bed. I think he might have been crying. He's like, Daddy, I don't even know what I did. I, I just, like, Eli was kicking me out. It's like, Zeke, I understand. I'm sorry. <laughs> go to bed. I go to Jonah's room. Luckily, Jonah can't, like, speak back to me yet with that sort of, like, oh, gosh, it makes me feel terrible. I sit down in the, bed, uh, in the chair in Jonah's room. I give him the bottle. I close my eyes to pray. And all of a sudden, this wave of just shame rushes over me. How can I do this to my kids? This is the kind of father I am? This is the kind of man I am? This is the kind of Christian I am? Did I mention I yelled at them while we were praying? <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, a, like a religious, churchy kind of guy. Like, like, this is who I am? If you're a parent of kids like that, you probably know that experience, and you, and you know it well. And I'm a man, I'm a dad, so I deal with it differently um, than women deal with this. Women deal with this in a very different way. And so uh, this morning, we're well, going to do something we've never done here at Park Church. I'm going to invite someone else to come up and speak for a minute about what it would be like um, if she were to deal with something like this. This is my wife. 
This is my wife, Amanda. It's not a surprise that we're doing this. We kind of talked about it. So given a similar situation, what would you, how would you do? Okay, I'm not going to make this up because I have an actual situation with the same three children, not different ones, <laughs> same three kids. Um, this was probably about three or four weeks ago. I am a full-time working um, mom with a husband who works lots of hours. And so mornings in our house tend to be um, less than beautiful. And so uh, about three and a half weeks ago, our five-year-old is in kindergarten. He j is just starting at his school. And then our nine-year-old is in fourth grade. And, you know, I woke up, make a long story short, I was running very, very late. Um, I needed to be at work by 8.20. It's like 8.05, and I have, if we don't leave by 8.06 to get you to school, I'm late. So it's 8.05, and I'm looking at the clock, and I'm starting to freak out because I realize, like, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. There are things that I have done in my morning that didn't make it easy. I am not ready. And it's time to go, and I look at my children. The rule is you have to have your shoes on and teeth brushed. Neither thing had happened. So. My response is to start screaming, and I am screaming at our children. Jonah has no idea why I'm screaming. He's the littlest one. And I am yelling, like, get in the car. Why are you not ready? So my response is to tell them, I am going to sit in the car and wait for you, or you will walk to school. <laughs> Clearly not going to happen. <laughs> the next thing I know, I'm laying on my horn in the driveway, screaming in my car, get in the car. No one can hear me, they're in the house. I'm yelling, um, just, I mean, I'm out of control. I can feel I'm out of control. I'm aware that I'm out of control. Still not changing my behavior. I'm just laying on the horn longer. Now I'm rolling down the windows, screaming. My children come out, taking their time, P.S. Get in the car. The half mile to school, I'm, I'm just screaming at my children. And uh, I'm telling them that this is, this is their fault. I am going to get in trouble. It's your fault. When my boss yells at me, it's your fault. I'm telling my nine-year-old and my five-year-old. And as I said it, I could just feel my face growing red and I could feel shame. And I pull up to the school and I open the car door, and I'm thinking, I just pinned responsibility for my actions. Sure, they didn't have their shoes on, but I am the reason we are late. I didn't wake up early enough. I didn't do what I needed to do. And I just put responsibility and the fear of me getting in trouble on my five-year-old and my nine-year-old. And I apologized to the boys, opened the, the van door, and Zeke, the nine-year-old, starts screaming at the five-year-old. Get out of the car, get out of the car. We're going to be late. This is your fault, Eli. Pick up your backpack, we're late because of you. And now I look and I think, great. I've now taught my nine-year-old that it's okay to treat his brother and to put responsibility on his brother for his actions. And so the car door closed and I'm saying, don't yell at Eli, don't yell at Eli, even though I was just yelling. And the car door closed and I I just lost it. I was hysterical crying. So I pick up the phone and I call Matt. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm the worst mom in the entire world. I'm the worst mother. Our children are going to hate me. They're going to hate me. I'm awful. I'm an awful mom. And he's trying to reassure me that no, I'm not. And I heard coming out of my mouth, this is the legacy I'm leaving for our children. When they look back 
they're not going to remember uh, this loving mom. I'm going to be defined in their eyes as the crazy woman who did nothing but yell at them. They're not going to feel love. They're just going to feel like this is who my mom is. She was always unhappy with us because we didn't put our shoes on. And so, you know, he's trying to reassure me that that's not true. Um, and part of me knows that it's not true. But the rest of me is having a hard time believing what he's saying. And so I continue crying. I, I say, okay, thanks, hang up the phone, keep on crying. The entire day I'm imagining our children sitting at their desks and I'm thinking, I, like, this is how I'm sending my kindergarten to start a school year and I'm imagining what they're like. Um, they were fine, they were completely fine when I got home that day. And I, and I saw that with my own eyes, that they were fine. But I still didn't believe that, even though I saw it. Um, here we are, like almost four weeks later, and every morning that I'm not perfect, every morning that I'm not patient, I still um, am believing like all of those feelings. They're still coming back of like that morning four weeks ago. And so for me, um, that's my every morning is, you know, be perfect or else you'll feel all of those things and you'll continue to ruin your children and leave a legacy of this is who your mom is. Thank you. All right. Thank you for your vulnerability and sharing. That's, that's a picture of how, of how Amanda uh, faces um, the shame over parenting. And men and women face that shame differently because culture is just different uh, for us in that regard. Um, but that's how, that's how she meets it. Now, before I tell you how I kind of face, um, face the shame of something like that, um, I'll tell you about it at the end. I have learned something that Brene Brown refers to as shame resiliency. Um, like, I've learned to do that, and I've kind of stumbled into it, but really it's because of two things, something that I believe and something that I've learned to do. And what I want to share with you this morning is if you, if you can learn to believe this thing, and if you can learn to do this thing, um, you can become resilient to whatever is causing you shame. Um, and your life can actually be different because of that. Now, I want you to hear this and listen to this, not because it's something I, I can do or I can believe, but it's something actually that Jesus does. It's something that Jesus believes and something that Jesus practices. And so what we're going to do with the rest of our time this morning is open up to um, the Gospel of John. We're going to look at a story uh, of Jesus um, confronting a shameful situation. And the way that he handles it, handles it um, really gives us guidance. It gives us direction forward to how we can face that in our own lives. And so it comes in the Gospel of John chapter 8. And uh, here's kind of how it begins. John writes, early in the morning, he came again to the temple. It's Jesus. All the people came to him and he sat down and began to teach them. Now John says all the people came to him. That's not literal, but like a lot of people were there. Everyone was out to see and to hear what Jesus had to say. This was a public, very public thing, right? Everyone who was anyone was there for this moment. And uh, what happens next is that the scribes and the Pharisees, these are the religious leaders of the time, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Now, adultery is not the sin of being an adult. Um, this is a heavy topic, so a little bit of, right? Um, 
Adultery is sleeping with someone who you shouldn't be sleeping with, right? Caught in the sin of adultery and making her stand before all of them. They said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now, the choice of John's words there are very interesting, making her stand uh, before all of them. When you stop and think for a moment about the thing that causes you to feel shame, about the thing that causes you to feel um, ashamed of yourself, what's the very worst thing you would ever imagine? Being seen by people in that shame. Being seen um, in, like, in the act of it, right? And that's, that's what happens for this uh, woman up here. For people to see you as the failure that you're afraid you are or the mistake that you're afraid you are. Why? Because if they see you for it, if they see who you really are, you are afraid that they're not going to want to actually relate to you anymore. That they're not going to want to be your friend. They're not going to want to be with you. They're not going to want to connect with you anymore. And so what you do is you hide the thing that causes you shame. And this is the, this is the dynamics of shame. This is how it works. You try to hide the thing that makes you ashamed. For this woman, she was thrust right in the middle of it, unable to hide the thing that causes her shame. This would be like um, if your internet browsing history accidentally got emailed to all your friends and family, right? This would be like if you slip up and you say that thing to your kid that you would never say in front of people, but you say it like at their birthday party with all of your friends and family there. This woman is thrust into the middle, exposing her in all of her guilt, her humiliation, her embarrassment, her shame. Now, they continue. They say, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. This is not um, to get them high. This is to pick up, pick up rocks and throw them at them to actually kill them. Um, the law that Moses is talking about here, the law of Moses, this was like the Jewish law in those days. This, was, this is what set the culture. This is what set what's in, what's out, what's good, and what's bad. Um, for them to do this, it was actually kind of lawful. Um, and uh, the thing about this, though, the thing that's interesting about the law of Moses is it also commands us to stone such men. Right? And it takes two to tango. Um, so there should be a man who's also being brought out to be stoned here, but there isn't. And why is that? We know why that is. Um, because every culture has its law, and then it has its unwritten law, right? And women were the ones who were stoned back then. Um, every culture has like what's expected, and then what's really expected. And we have those same kind of laws today that drive our um, not good enough, that, 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 that drive our shame. And for us, there's all sorts of cultural expectations that are placed on us. Um, and they're different depending on kind of who you are and where you're coming from, what your culture is. Um, for men, and, and this, is, this is really from Brene Brown's research, and she's kind of like a liberal uh, progressive feminist. So this is not like, like old time like guy talking. This is like her. Um, for men, what's expected of her, uh, of guys, is um, primacy of work. This is the most important thing. Um, strength, right? Never showing weakness. Um, having all of the answers, which is why we don't ask for directions, that sort of thing. Um, and then, like, power over a woman. 
Uh, in our society, as a man, if you do, if you're able to succeed in those four things, you will feel good about yourself. That's sort of that's sort of where men are in this culture. For women, it's a lot shorter of a list, or it's a, it's a lot easier of a list. Um, pretty, thin, nice, and never letting them see you sweat. If you're able to do those four things as a woman, you're going to be good to go. What she means by all of that is really be perfect. You saw Amanda use that word up here. Um, unless I'm perfect, I feel this way. And those are just some of the expectations that are placed on us, where if we don't live up to those things, we will um, feel like we're not good enough, right? And then we have our family's laws on top of it. And families have all kinds of laws, and some of them are arbitrary. Some of them are good, but some of them aren't, right? Um, for some families, if you get a tattoo, you're out of the family, right? Um, if you marry the wrong kind of person, you're out of the family. If you don't marry someone who went to college and has the right kind of job, you're out of the family. Um, if you don't come to Christmas at my house a, a right proportion of times, you feel judgment, right? You're out of the family. And then there's also the laws that go on inside of our head. And these are the harshest because the judge inside of our head is the harshest. For a lot of us, we put up a picture of what we want to be, of what perfection looks like, and we set it up so that we will never achieve that. And so we will always fall short, so we will always think of ourselves as a failure. We will always think of ourselves um, as not good enough. When they bring this woman out like this, what they're doing is lawful, but it lacks any kind of compassion. But in the process of doing this, they do do one thing that is absolutely great. And they do it unintentionally. They do it by mistake. John tells us that they actually do this um, in order to trap Jesus, to get Jesus. But in the process of doing it, they do something that's unintentionally great. And that is they ask a fantastic question. If you are someone who struggles with shame, who struggles with that question, will I ever be good enough? Will I ever be blank enough? Um, the question that these scribes and Pharisees ask of Jesus is perhaps the most important question that you could be asking or that you should be asking. They say, in the law of Moses, we know what that says. Their question is, what do you say? What do you say, Jesus? Not what does the law say, not what does the unwritten law say, not what does culture say, not what does your family say, not what does the law inside of your head say, but what do you say, Jesus? There's a, um, there's a quote that Brene Brown uses again and again. It's kind of a famous quote. It's from Teddy Roosevelt, actually. And uh, it's, it's referred to as the man in the arena quote. And every talk she gives, every book she writes, she puts it in there. So you'll catch it if you ever see her. Um, I don't remember the quote word for word, but paraphrasing it, um, Teddy Roosevelt is talking about what actually matters, what actually, like whose voice actually matters. And what he says is, um, it's not the critic that counts. It's not the person on the sidelines. It's not the fan in the stands who's watching the game whose voice matters who's saying, um, you should be playing better, or I can play better. It's not their voice that counts. It's the man who is in the arena, who is on the field, who's playing the game, who's, who's, whose face is marred by dust and blood and sweat, who is trying, who has failed, and who has gotten back up. 
It's his voice that matters. Don't worry about the critics. Worry about those people who are in there, uh, in it with you. In this scenario, there is an entire room filled with critics, filled with people who are in the stands at the stadium watching the game, all with their fingers pointed at this one woman and the only other person who was actually on the field with her is Jesus. His is the voice that matters. If you struggle with shame or if you're just a person, this idea is so huge. If you could get this idea like into your head, into part of who you are, into your heart, that his voice is the one that matters. It's not what culture expects of you. It's not what your family says. It's not what the girls said about you at the middle school table or the guys said about you in high school. It's not what even you say to yourself, the only voice that actually matters is Jesus. This is something that's absolutely distinct about following him. Other people care about all of the voices out there, all kinds of things, or they don't know what they care. We care about Jesus' voice. If you could learn that, if you could believe that, if you could make that part of who you are, it would absolutely change everything about uh, life for you, especially given what Jesus says. And what does he say? It's so great. He doesn't really say anything at first. He says, Jesus bent down and he wrote, he wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, why did he do that? Um, scholars aren't really sure. Maybe it's something that's lost to us as a culture. Maybe he actually wrote something and John just didn't record it. Um, maybe he didn't want to dignify their, their kind of accusations by just giving them an answer. The reason that I think Jesus bent down and wrote on the ground was to draw attention away from the woman who was exposed in her shame and on him. All of their fingers are pointed at this woman. Uh, all of their fingers are pointing towards this woman exposed in the midst of her shame. And what he does is he draws all of their attention away from those fingers to, to his finger um, writing on the ground. And they keep badgering him. This is what happens. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. This, this, this response is just simply um, amazing and it's, it's, uh, it's gracious and it's merciful and it's absolutely brilliant. If, if you've never messed up like this, go ahead and throw the stone. If you've never looked at another woman, if you've never um, taken a little off the top, if you've never said the thing that you wish you didn't say, if you've never interrupted prayer to yell at your kids, go ahead and cast the first stone. What Jesus is saying here is not just, um, you shouldn't judge because you're not so great either. And it's not just, um, don't judge or else you'll be judged. He says that somewhere else. What Jesus is saying here Look, we are all in the same boat. We are, all, we are all in this together. We are all in the sinner boat. We are all in the not good enough boat, the not perfect enough boat. We are all in the looked at the other woman boat. We're all in the yelled at our kids boat. We are all in that boat together. And to think that you could um, pick up a stone 
and, 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 and hurl it at someone else who's in the boat with you is just a ridiculous, it's just a ridiculous idea. We're all in this boat together, uh, except, except of course for Jesus. Jesus is the one who is not actually in that boat with us. He doesn't belong in the boat because he is the one person who is good enough. He is the one person who is perfect enough. But the whole thing about Christian faith, the whole thing about Jesus is that he emptied himself and came to us and he got into our boat with us. And he got into our boat with us and that makes our boat good enough. That makes it so that we are not going to sink our own boat. That makes it so that our boat is not going to go down in the storm. John continues, once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, sir. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way. And from now on, don't, don't sin again. Jesus, the one person who has the right to pick up the stone and to hurl it at this woman for what she has done, the one person who has that right, what does he do with that right? He frees her. He forgives her. He releases her. She is standing before him now alone in her shame, where he is in a position um, to hurl the stone, and he sends her away free from her shame. Shame wants to say to you, because of what you've done, you're a mistake, you're a failure, you're unworthy of love and connection and belonging. In fact, you are so unworthy of being part of us that it's better if you die. It's better if we cast stones at you. That's what shame wants to say to you. Here's what shame wants to say. It says, you are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. But what Jesus says to us is you are flawed. I love you and you belong to me anyway. Yes, you are flawed. You are messed up. You are not good enough. You are not perfect. You're not anything enough. You have sinned. And Jesus, notice, he doesn't excuse the sin. He says, don't do it anymore, right? Don't do the adultery anymore. Don't interrupt prayer to yell at your kids anymore. Don't say things you shouldn't say. Sin is not good for you. It's really not. However, I am not going to let sin be the thing that defines you. I am not going to let the consequences of your actions be the thing that makes you who you are or that ruins you because I am going to take on your sin. I am going to take on the things that you wish you had. I am going to take on your shame. I'm going to take it to myself and I'm going to put it to death so that you, like this woman, can walk away free. And that is what Jesus says to us. That's the good news of Jesus in the face of shame, in the face of our not good enough. I love you anyway. You belong to me. When I said earlier that there was um, two things, one to believe and one to do, this is the thing um, that I want you to consider taking a step towards believing and not, not giving it lip service, right? Not just saying, yeah, I believe Jesus loves me, but actually believing it in a way that matters that makes a difference in your heart, that actually changes things uh, for you, for you and in you. 
What would it take for you to believe this and to really believe it? It'll take a few things. I mean, for one thing, it'll take Jesus himself actually speaking it into your life. Jesus, through the power of his spirit, actually speaking it into your heart, into your mind, um, speaking it again and again. And so what you can do there is you can ask him to speak that truth into your life in a way that changes things, in a way that does things. But the other thing that it's going to take is it's going to take someone else's help. It's going to take another human being's help. And here's what I mean by that. The way that shame works is shame isolates us. It makes us feel that because of this thing we've done, because of what's been done to us, no one knows me. No one knows who I really am. No one knows how flawed I truly am. And I am, in fact, all alone in this. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not perfect enough. But I can't ever let them see that or else they won't like me, they won't be around me, they won't, they won't want to be married to me, and so I'm going to have to hide that, I have to conceal it. I can't let anyone see this mess because um, I'm in the boat all by myself and no one understands. This is what shame does to us. This is the conditions where shame breeds, like a mold or a fungus that grows in the dark. We see this in the story the crowd successfully isolates this woman by herself. This is what the power of shame wants to do to you, to us, isolate you. And the antidote to isolation is simply connection. It's community. It's relationship. It's reaching out to someone and saying, I am flawed. Listen to this. I am flawed. Listen to what's really going on in here. And not being met with condemnation or judgment, or with a stone, with someone subtly bending down to pick up their stone. But it's saying those things and being met with empathy, being met with compassion, being met with, yeah, I hear you. I've been through something like that too. We'll get through this together. Um, the reason why the way I treated my kids doesn't just crush me like it does is in part because of what I believe, and I challenge you to believe like that too, but it's also part of because of what I've learned to do. And it's, I've learned to reach out when I feel that way. And in this case, the person who I've reached out to is Amanda. And I can call her or I could talk to her and say, look, this is what happened, and I'm not afraid that she's going to um, judge me or that she's going to uh, condemn me or humiliate me. I'm confident she's going to say something like, gosh, like, I know what that's like. I've done that too. Um, let's not do that again. But I know what that's like. I've been through it before. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to believe differently. I want you to believe the thing um, that I said, that you are flawed, but Jesus loves you anyway. You belong to him anyway. I want you to work on believing that. Ask God to help you. Ask people to help you. But the second thing I want you to do is start to reach out for connection. If you're someone who is just feeling that in here, that shame, if this is tugging at you, reach out to connection. Don't settle for living in isolation because really what you're doing is dying in isolation, right? The stones kill you one force impact at a time. It's the same with shame. It kills you slowly over time. So, See if you can identify a safe person, 
See if you can identify someone who you think is going to be um, compassionate, who's going to understand, who's not going to humiliate you, who's not going to tell other people about you, right? Test the waters a bit. Don't blab your stuff to everyone. Um, but when you find the right person, risk, like, take the risk of being vulnerable and sharing that. If you've ever had the experience of seeing someone, or maybe you've been this person, of seeing someone for the first time share that thing that's on their heart that they've never been able to share before. If you've seen that, you know what happens. It's like a, um, it's, it's like a huge weight is lifted off of your shoulders. And you could breathe again and you can smile again. It's, it's because shame cannot survive being spoken. Shame um, withers and dies in the light of empathy, of compassion, of understanding, of connection. So for you who is like struggling with this, like there's a few different things. If it's, if it's a big thing, if it's, if, it's a, if it's a crippling thing, maybe for you, for some of you, the right step is to seek professional counseling, professional therapy and help in this. There's absolutely no shame in doing that. People who make that decision because they know they need it, that's the most courageous thing you can do. People who try to hide it or pretend that they can do it all on their own, that's not courageous. Maybe you're reaching out, and if you want, um, we can help you connect with those kind of professionals. Uh, as a real practical matter, though, there's like two things I'll tell you. Um, one is, if you feel like you're struggling in your isolation in this regard, um, I want to challenge you to join a community group. I want to challenge you to get, to get into a smaller group of people who are part of this church. Um, not because on a Wednesday night with 15 people, you're going to pour out your deepest and darkest. That's not what community group is like. Um, but you do stand a chance to meet someone else within your community who, who maybe you can connect with. Maybe this is a safe person who you can open up to. Um, if you're not in a group and you're struggling with, with not having connection and you're isolated, join one. Just Give it a shot. The other thing I'll say is don't, don't be afraid to reach out to our Park Cares ministry. Todd mentioned that before. This is a group, um, this is a small group of trustworthy, uh, trained, skilled people who can, if nothing else, um, listen to you and hear you and give you some compassion, give you some empathy back, and hopefully um, they, can point you, they can point you in the right direction. What shame wants to do is say to you, um, you know, you're alone in this. Don't let anyone see. Go at it alone. You have to. What, Je what Jesus says, what I'm saying is don't. Don't do that. Reach out for help. Now, this is way too long. So I'm going to close right now in prayer. But before I do that, I'm going to call up Justine. You're going to lead us in communion. Um, I want, I'll wrap up with this one last thought as Justine is coming forward. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Wrap up with this one last thought. This year we want to focus on finding out, learning how to love where we live, right? One of the best ways you can love where you live is reflecting the sort of thing that Jesus did, reflecting that into the world around you. You can, um, you can become that safe person, those safe people, uh, for those in your world who are dealing with this. If you could do that, you will show them who God is and how much um, he loves them too. So let's pray. We'll welcome the musicians up forward, and then we'll share communion together. God, we thank you for this uh, time together. We thank you for, um, for doing what you did for this woman 2,000 years ago.
for showing us a better way forward, a better way through um, shame. God, we ask you that you would help us to believe what we can't believe, and we ask that you would help us reach out for connection. Give us the courage that we need to reach out. God, we thank you for this community. May it be a place of empathy, of not picking up the stones, of um, kindness, of generosity with one another, of understanding, a place of forgiveness, a community of love. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.